You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. What are the essential skills for today's B2B marketers? I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice, and that's the question I put to Brian Finnerty of Udacity, an online learning company that helps businesses and professionals transform their talent. To be a good marketer, I think you have to have a couple of core skills and then some ancillary skills as well. The two things that I think are really important for you know people who might be considering marketing as a career or looking at it as a career, um, there's the soft skills side of it and then there's the data-driven side of it. It's a good time to talk about skills because you've probably heard of this thing called the Great Resignation. A lot of people are thinking about and talking about their careers, their skills, and finding something more than a job, but a passion. And all that talk means good and bad things for a marketer like Brian. The market is ready to talk about Udacity, which is great, but it's ready to talk about everything else in the skills development, talent management, and retention space as well. And that's noisy. That and more on this episode of B2B Nation. Brian Finnerty, welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you take a minute and tell us who you are and what you do? Hey, Mike. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm the VP of Marketing for a company called Udacity, and uh, I run all aspects of our enterprise marketing, consumer marketing, uh, government marketing. We essentially have three go-to-markets as a company, so that's a very interesting challenge. And Udacity as a company, uh, we create digital talent transformation for our customers. So what is that, you might ask? It is creating job-ready digital talent um, for people in areas like machine learning, cloud computing, cybersecurity, and and more. So uh, job-ready skills to help people get the careers of the future. And we work with big brands all over the world, like Vodafone, Toyota, BMP, Shell, et cetera, um, and across all verticals. So aerospace, defense, automotive, professional services, technology companies, you, you name it. We, uh, we probably have a talent tra- transformation strategy for you. All right. So over the past, maybe not two years, but 18 months, certainly over the past year, there have been so many conversations about talent, careers, recruitment, retaining employees, employee engagement, no shortage of things to talk about in that space. Does that present its own challenges to a company that does what you do when everyone is talking about it? Yeah, it does. I mean, when the it's good and it's bad, right? When the, the market's very noisy about a particular topic and um, job-ready skills and talent and, and those kind of topics are hot at the moment with all that's happening around COVID, you know, working from home, people changing careers. Um, like the numbers are pretty staggering, Mike. I think looking at the latest numbers from November, we had four and a half million Americans leaving jobs, even as there were a ton of openings in the market. So this concept of the great resignation is, is real and it's certainly happening. So it's incumbent on companies to, you know, to make sure that their employees have career paths that make sense, um, that they're supported and that their career goals and ambitions are mapped out for them. Um, so that's a, that's a big challenge in, in a climate like this where people are, you know, are just standing tools and, and leaving jobs. The other thing that I think is, is really tough in a market like this is the disconnect that you have between what companies feel they're offering to their employees and what their employees feel that they're getting. And we actually did a, a recent survey with a, a company called Ipsos, a market research firm. Um, globally, we interviewed 2,000 
managers and 4,000 employees at companies just to see like, how are people feeling about how they're supported in the workplace, their professional development, skills development, um, you know, how their talent is supported by the company. And the interesting thing that we found from that survey was that there was just a huge disconnect between how successful companies felt their talent programs were and how successful employees felt their talent programs were. So interestingly, companies felt, 80% of them, that they were offering you know, talent development programs that were moderately successful or better. Very different story when you talk to employees. Only 45% of those employees felt that that was the case. So we have a clear disconnect here between what people feel they're getting from their company in terms of talent and career development and what the company feels that they're offering. So um, lots of interesting things happening there and, and uh, like to think Udacity is part of the answer. So speaking of talent and skills, from a marketing perspective, as marketing teams have grown over the last 10 or 15 years, they have taken on people in tech roles, people yep. in data roles, content roles. The list kind of goes on and on. What do you think are the essential skills for B2B marketing leaders? What are they going to be looking for over the next few years? It's why I love marketing so much. It's such a varied discipline now. Um, so to be a good marketer, I think you have to have a couple of core skills and then some ancillary skills as well. The two things that I think are really important for you know people who might be considering marketing as a career or looking at it as a career, there's the soft skills side of it and then there's the data-driven side of it. So the soft skills side of it is, to me, it's storytelling, right? So can you tell a compelling story about your your product, your solution, your vision, your go-to-market, right? There's a really good quote from Joe Chernoff. He says, good marketing makes the company look smart. Great marketing makes the customer feel smart. And I, I love that because that really gets to the essence of what good marketing is. It's not preaching to your customers or your prospects. It's giving them information, informing them, helping them to make the right decision about their needs. And ultimately, it's helping them feel good and feel smarter about what they're, about what they're doing. So I think on that level, building a brand, um, you know, making an impact in the market, having good brand affinity, brand sentiment, brand loyalty. That's a really important part of marketing. And a lot of that comes down to telling the right story, you know, having a competitive sort of force field around you and just being super clear and articulate about what you do and the value that you bring. Um, and your customers are a huge part of that. So customer marketing is a big, a big thing for me. The other side of marketing that's also to my mind, equally fascinating is the data-driven side of it. So now marketing is completely aligned and unified with sales. So in most modern marketing organizations, we're now on the hook for pipeline. And not just pipeline as a big number each quarter, but pipeline that genuinely progresses through the funnel. So at Udacity, our entire marketing team, which includes the sales development reps actually, is focused on and incented on creating pipeline that progresses. So we monitor pipeline from stage zero, which is basically a meeting booked with a prospect all the way through to closed one. So stage one is when that you know, meeting, first meeting happens, an opportunity is created, there's a dollar value associated with it, and we track it all the way through to, to close one or close loss, depending on how those conversations go. So to, to own that side of marketing, I think, you need to be really data-driven. You need to understand marketing apps. You need to understand attribution. You need to understand digital advertising. So to my mind, that is why marketing is such a fantastic and interesting career because you can use your left brain and your right brain, the creative side of your, of your personality and the data-driven side of your personality. And I think you'll find that most really successful marketers 
do that extre- extremely well and certainly something I aspire to um, myself. And you've got to be agile enough that none of that stuff ever sits still, right? We talk about the tech and the data side, and there are certainly people out there who today think, well, you know what, maybe we went a little too far to the tech data side and ignored the storytelling for too long. And we've kind of made everything a numbers game. And you talked about marketing ops. There's new software platforms that come along all the time uh, that can be integrated into your stack. So it, it never gets old. No, it never gets old. And, and again, what's interesting about tech, the, the beauty of technology and marketing is it gives you scale. And like sometimes scale isn't in and of itself like an end goal. Um, but ultimately, and we'll talk, I'm sure, more about account-based marketing. What we're certainly looking for at Udacity is scale and precision, right? So not just being able to you know, reach tens of thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of people, which we do um, with some of our scholarship offerings and our integrated campaigns, but it's actually reaching the right people at the right accounts, the buying committee within those accounts that really matters. So we want to do more of the latter at scale, right? And there are tools in the market that really help you do that. So I think scale and precision is kind of the, certainly the way that we're running marketing at Udacity. What do you think is the most underrated skill in marketing right now? You know, if I had to say something, I would say it's, and maybe I'm biased because I have a, an arts background and a, an English degree, it's writing. I think the ability to write clearly and concisely, whether it's ad copy, whether it's, you know, a landing page, email, I hate to say it's a lost art, but like writing is a challenge for a lot of marketing organizations, good quality writing that understands your buyer personas that can articulate your value proposition, not just at the highest level, but a couple of levels down, you know, spliced by industry, by stage of the buying process. You know, this is complicated stuff. It's not easy. And I think without really, really strong writing skills, it's tough to be successful. So it's one of the things that we look for in hiring um, folks on our marketing team is just very talented communicators, both verbally, but written communication as well. Can you write can you articulate difficult concepts Too often a technical buyer um, clearly and concisely? Um, that's to some degree a, a lost skill. Um, interestingly enough, I, I started my career as a technical writer for an e-learning company called Skillsoft. And that was probably the most valuable experience I had from a writing perspective. So I did, you know, I did an English degree and I did a master's in, in literature. But it was only when I started working as a technical writer that I realized hey, the real beauty of writing is you can take really complex technical information about, you know, trusted domains and Lotus Notes or NT networks or whatever, and you can articulate that to somebody who is a subject matter expert, even though you may not be. So using those writing skills to articulate densely technical concepts was probably the most valuable education I had on the job. And I feel like I still use the skills I learned in that technical writing role today to express myself clearly and concisely, to you know, make complex information easy to understand, all of those good things. And I think as a marketer, it's essential to be able to do that. I just realized the other day, the first time I collected a check for writing was a little over 30 years ago, which made me feel old, but made <laughs> me feel like, hey, I am good enough at it that for 30 years, people have been paying me to do it, right? <laughs> We don't say old, we say experienced. And uh, yeah, there's nothing nothing more satisfying than making money from something that you can do well. All right. right. 
going to give you three quick questions. We'll see if you have three quick answers for us. In your opinion, how long does the great resignation last? Or maybe when is it just no longer news? You know, I think something really interesting has happened over the past two years, despite all of the, you know, the tragedy and the the havoc that this global pandemic has wreaked. I, I think it has actually caused people to just fundamentally step back and go, am I doing something every day that I genuinely enjoy, where I feel respected? I feel like I'm using my skills in a in a meaningful and useful way. And I think a lot of people have asked themselves that question and just simply gone, no, um, I'm not, I'm not earning enough money. This career that I'm in is is not giving me the opportunities that I need. And this is not the way I want my life to go. So I think we've had a lot of people who've just stepped back. Now, I'm not just talking about people in tech roles and talking about people in, you know, customer service, like people in the hospitality industry, people who do tough jobs every day for very little pay and very little thanks. And the good news, the good part of this is there is another way, like there is a way to transform your career and there is a way to to land a higher paying job that values you and your skills more. Um, and I think people are starting to realize that, you know, why, I, I want that for myself. I want that for my family. So I think that's that's a good thing. And, and I also feel like this isn't over yet. I mean, I think we've certainly not seen the end of this wave of, of resignations. And I think employers are responding slowly, right? So how can we build career paths for our people? How can we upskill people in particular areas of our company, you know, to take on more technical roles in cloud computing, machine learning, AI, like the careers of the future. So it's good that companies are looking within to try and train the people they have. And they're also having huge challenges, you know, bringing people in from outside who have the skill sets they need. So again, that's part of how I feel Udacity is solving this problem. It's like job ready skills, verified, validated skills on the job, that's really hard to come by. And there's, you know, there's not many organizations that can provide that. So I think that big shift in the in the market is, is something that's definitely happening. And I think it's just going to continue through 2022. I don't see any change of that for the for the short term. I think it's also pointed out like the fragility. You mentioned the hospitality industry. There are plenty of places in the United States where if you were in the hotel or restaurant industry, chances are you could have that job for as long as you wanted it. No one was ever going to tell you people couldn't travel there or go there. And then all of a sudden they did. And now you're faced with, how do I work? Well, you've got customer service experience. You know how to deal with people, right? And you turn that into a job in an industry that maybe just isn't exposed to the fragility when things go nuts. Yeah, exactly. And I think people are realizing, hey, I've got tremendous potential here. And with a little bit of effort and a bit of work, um, I can, you know, and in some cases, as little as four months work, like you put in a, a four month time investment into a Udacity nano degree and you can be you can be job ready for particular roles, technical roles that, you know, simply wouldn't have been able to do before that. So there are ways to, you know, from continuing education perspective to really improve your skill set and make yourself much more hireable in different industries and leverage the skills that you've built up in your existing job more as well. So ultimately, I think a good thing for people, there's more mobility, there's more options for them, um, which, you know, which is what we all want. What's your best guess on what happens with in-person events in 2022, if anything happens at all? 
Um, events, anyone in mar- mar- marketing um, over the past few years, events have been the bane of your lives. I mean, I remember back when the pandemic started, I was at another organization. We were planning a big in-person conference, you know, 20,000 people in San Francisco. And we booked headline speakers. All of our customers and partners were there, were going to be there. And it was supposed to happen in, you know, March, uh, right when, you know, when things shut down. So there was a lot of sunk cost there. There was some brave decisions that had to be made where, you know, we're pulling out of this, you know, we're, we're, we're going to refund all our suppliers. We're going to take a hit for that. So it kind of started badly. And I think all of 2020 was just a mess. Nobody knew what to do. In 2021, events started to, you know, we obviously pivoted to virtual events, which I have found to be less effective. Like you can certainly get the high numbers, but getting the kind of engagement that you got with an in-person event was obviously much more difficult. And I think that's proven to be true from a pipeline perspective as well. The big loss for me is is field marketing events of, you know, dinners, sporting events where you actually face-to-face meet with your customers and prospects. Even better, you bring your customers and prospects together and you can talk about issues that are impacting your business, what tool sets you're using, like those I think are really missed uh, from a marketing perspective. Um, and I've done a few of them, even in the past six months, I've done a few of them and you know they've sort of come back online, but then Omicron came and sort of knocked all that off. So I feel like the rest of this year is just gonna be a mixed bag, to be honest, Mike. I think events are very much in standby mode. I know there's some events happening uh, in the Middle East and, and some parts of the world are moving ahead with in-person events, but. I, I don't think it's going to be back to normal for at least another uh, nine to 12 months. Yeah. It's just really unpredictable because, yeah. you know, a little over a year from now, I think we thought things were looking good. And then what's the next thing to come down the line, right? So. Absolutely. You have to plan events so far in advance that you yeah. have to be ready to go, right? And then you don't know what's going to happen in the time in between. That's the big challenge. Like you have to put down a lot of money to, and you have to certainly have runway to plan them correctly. If you're taking an account-based approach, you know, you've got to make sure that the your target accounts will be there, the right people, titles from those accounts will be there. So the prep work to do an event properly is pretty enormous and the financial outlay is, is really high. And when there's so much uncertainty about whether the event will actually happen and whether the people you want to engage with are actually going to go, it just makes the whole thing a very tough prospect. And, and you know, we're, we're all still dealing with that. Yeah. The calculus of do I go, do I not go has completely changed in many ways because it used to be, do I have the budget? Am I free to go during that week, those three days, whatever. And now it's, am I comfortable going? Do I want to go and then come back to my family? The decision has gone from a strictly business decision in a lot of ways to a very different decision for people. It really has. And then, you know, you might, I think we were very optimistic at the start of this, that the virtual world would would compensate. And to be fair, it has to some degree, but like you're just not as engaged at a virtual event. It's easier to switch off and get distracted. You know, it's much easier to let your calendar kind of take over and you end up signing up for something and attending the first hour. And then, you know, I better go to this meeting and, you know, I have to take the kids, pick up the kids from school. Like there's just, there's always stuff that happens when you're not physically at an event that distracts you from it. So I think that's why the engagement levels have dropped. We've got Zoom fatigue, you know, it's just been tough all around on the events front. I I do think though, I'll be very happy when we're back to smaller scale in-person events, curated field marketing events, that those are, those have always been great, really effective marketing events in my experience. 
So we talked about the events and how that's changed over the last couple of years. We talked about the great resignation and what that has done over the last 18 months or so. What's the one marketing lesson, skill, or fact that you learned in the past year? I would say, despite everything, you can't go silent, right? So even though there are, it's increasingly difficult with the events, channel being completely offline. And, you know, we talked earlier about being part of a very hot topic, like, you know, the great resignation. Um, It's really important that you, you still make the investments in your brand. There's a really good quote from Henry Ford, which said, stopping advertising to save money is like stopping your watch to save time, right? Might look good initially, but it's not actually doing anything. You need to make, continue to make the investments in engaging with your audience, with your target audience. And although some of those channels that we've typically relied on are, are no longer available to us or are severely compromised in the, in the case of events, there's other ways that you can reach your audience and you have to just get clever about it. And I think at the end of the day, it's the story, right? The story, not the channel, really determines your success. Now, you'll adapt the story for the channels that you're running it on, but ultimately you need to have that good story, you know, that strengthens your brand and and basically reaches reaches and engages your audience. You need to have that high level story and you need to have the content that backs it up as well. So I don't think that's changed at all. The question we ask just about everybody who appears on B2B Nation, what is your favorite tool? And as always, we ask, don't say your phone unless you're citing a specific app, but what's the tool you can't work without? I'm a little biased here because I come from an account-based marketing background. I would have to say as a marketer, we talked about scale and precision earlier and sort of my vision for how marketing works best today. I think Anyone who isn't looking with an account-based lens at their go-to-market is is definitely missing out right now. And I think there are some tremendous platforms on the market that will help give you that level of insight into, you know, which accounts that you care about most are are researching you, your competitors, which accounts are in market for your solution. They're a strong fit for what you do a lookalike for your existing customers, you know, firmographic data is identical. You can really, really see where you should be spending your time, where your sales team should be spending your time, their time, where your SDRs should be spending their time. So for me, it's it's an account-based marketing platform that will unlock all of the other investments that you make in digital advertising and virtual events, um, content marketing, all of those key channels. If you want to be really efficient about pipeline creation, you should have an ABM platform in place to do that. All right, Brian Finnerty, thanks for appearing on B2B Nation. My pleasure, Mike. Really appreciate the uh, opportunity to chat and uh, I will talk to you soon. Thanks again to Brian Finnerty for taking the time to chat today on B2B Nation. If you found this episode insightful or interesting, share it with a friend and subscribe to B2B Nation on the podcast platform of your choice. Google, Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud among them. Thanks to the technology advice team, Amy Dunn, Sarah Sanders, KJ Payson, Caroline Wishar, who does all the real work around here. Mnemonics in the Guild created the greatest podcast theme song of all time. We'll catch you next time on B2B Nation. B2B Nation.